everything finally came together, I think, with meditation as my spiritual path, and then yoga in helping me to still my body. I was already working on stilling my mind, but my body was kind of jerking me around and discovering that, and that the two are interrelated. Calm mind, calm body. Welcome to Guys Talking Yoga, a podcast created to help get more men to experience the benefits of yoga by sharing the stories and paths of other guys. I'm your host, Derek Walker, and today's guest is Rich Driscoll, retired financial services executive who's been on a spiritual path since the mid-1960s. You know, back then in Southern California, most 12-year-olds were focusing on Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, and the LA Dodgers. However, young Rich Driscoll was captivated by the best-selling book, Autobiography of a Yogi, by Paramahansa Yogananda. Ever the seeker and the student, Rich's path and interest in meditation took him to Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship as a curious teenager, the teachings of Ram Dass and Be Here Now, and later in the 1970s to the University of Colorado in Boulder, the then epicenter of the American-Tibetan Buddhist movement. However, his spiritual connection, community, and meditation practice really became forged during the painful loss of his first wife, Marguerite, and later strengthened and intertwined with Hatha Yoga through the insightful guidance and grounding support of his second wife, Allison. You know, this is not only a story about a yogi and how he found his way, but also about the love and support he received from two amazing women who kept him on that spiritual path. Rich Driscoll, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Derek. So we caught up last fall, and one of the things that really interests me about your path with yoga is you didn't get into it as somebody who was trying to deal with a bad back or dealing with stress at the office. Your interest was peaked quite early in your teens. It was the spirituality of yoga that really caught your attention. Yes. So where were you when you first came across yoga? So I don't want to get too much into my background about why would I be predisposed to something like that, especially on my mother's side. People were exploring lots of different paths. So I was used to that with my grandmother. My great-grandmother converted to Baha'i at the age of 90. They were checking things out. So that was part of the environment. And When I saw this book, Autobiography of a Yogi, and I was about 12 or something like that, and his picture was in Los Angeles Herald Examiner, and I didn't know who this person was. So I was very curious about the book, read it, could not put it down, and got very, very curious about these people. So this is where I first came across the word yoga, the word guru, that yoga is a spiritual practice primarily. So that seed was planted very early. There was nothing about asanas in that book. It was all about union with the ultimate, union with God, what have you. So you you checked out this book, you started reading it, you really got into it. Where did your interest in yoga go from there? So it was more about the people. Who were these yogis with these magical powers? What did they do to get into this state? And I didn't really come across yoga as a physical discipline at that age until a little bit later. And that was, it was a book by Swami Vishnu Devananda, very traditional presentation of yoga, 
pranayama, the, each of the eight limbs of yoga, according to Patanjali. In, in, when you first came across Autobiography of a Yogi, this was like mid-1960s, right? Yes, it was. Absolutely. And especially out in California. Yes. There was more and more of an interest and in a kind of rising awareness amongst certain groups of people out there that started taking interest in all this stuff. Yes, it it was happening and I had access to it. I was very grateful that that wave was happening because at the age of 12 in 1964 or so, there was really nothing except this Vishnu Devananda book. And there was nowhere I could go and find out about this. The people in Yogananda's organization were all much older They had very inspiring stories that I loved hearing, but there was no one my age. So this was a really big sore point with my dad, who was a sports nut, who could reel off sports statistics like nothing. He he was dressing me up in a little L.A. Dodgers uniform at the age of five. Right. And here I go, and I I don't want to hear about Sandy Koufax or Don Drysdale anymore. I want to read about these yogis. Yeah. And he's like, I just don't get you, kid. <laughs> yeah. He said, what the hell is going on with this kid? So interesting enough, you're 12 years old. It's mid-1960s. Obviously, a lot of adults are getting into the larger psychedelic and spiritual movement that was happening out there. Yeah. And it's pretty fascinating that, because you're right, there probably were very few teenagers into this kind of stuff, especially younger teenagers. So how did you nurture your path and where did it take you as you became an older teenager and moved in your 20s? So I didn't know what to do with this because I felt a little bit like an outsider being so young. Yet I started reading Be Here Now by Ram Dass, so that I could relate to. And he was demonstrating asanas, kind of. You know, he wasn't a yoga teacher. And for those listening, how would you describe who Ram Dass was? So he was one of these pivotal... 1960s figures, along with Timothy Leary. And they were all experimenting with LSD. They all got kicked out of Harvard. And they all kind of fed into the countercultural movement of the time. And it really took off. And so Ram Dass wrote this book, Be Here Now, about his experiences in India with his guru. And yoga is mentioned in there as a spiritual path. So that really got my attention. But then Ram Dass was not an organization. So what do you do? You just read his next book, and that's about it. And, you know, and all kinds of wild stuff was going on. I remember at the age of 15, my parents took me up to San Francisco. And we weren't even in Haight-Ashbury. We were like on Telegraph Hill walking around. And people are running around in the streets with jugs of wine and... They're smoking dope. And it was just crazy. I mean, it was really out of control. Right. Your dad's just thinking like, God, I I wish this kid was into the Dodgers. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So as you got into your 20s, where does your path start to arc with your knowledge and experience with yoga? So I should say that I had always been interested in Buddhism as well. And that started when my grandmother came back from Japan. She had a statue of the Buddha. I was maybe 10. And I said, who's that? She put a statue up on her mantle. And she said, that's the Buddha. I said, well, what's the Buddha? And she said, that's 
the religion in Japan. And he's in a meditation posture. He's not in a cross. He doesn't seem to be suffering. So that was like another seed that was planted, meditation, long, long time ago. And so I, I was at the University of Colorado for just a little bit, and there was all kinds of meditation stuff going on. I didn't know where to start. And I think a lot of this had to do with the fact that Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche had founded a center in Boulder. And a lot of the students were like either hanging out there or other places. And the early 70s, the 60s were still continuing a little bit mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. the spiritual exploration. So I knew it was going to be meditation, the next thing that I, I really explore. But it was always getting postponed. I had to I get settled, get a career. There's always an excuse not to meditate, right? Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. I should back up just a little bit and say, the only real meditation instruction I ever received at that time in the early 70s was from you know Paramahansa Yogananda's organization. So mm -hmm. one of his original disciples gave me that instruction, and that's all I knew. And what was the instruction? It was a simple yogic thing of following your breath and using a mantra like Om. It was pretty straightforward. But my mind was so wild, I just couldn't settle down with that. And then during college, I think I was more focused on, well, what the hell am I going to do? I was interested in French, and my mother was telling me, what the hell are you going to do with that? My dad had like just like, this is hopeless. Now the kid wants to go to France and speak French on the left bank or some damn thing. They got a French Buddhist for a son. I, I don't know how I lost him, right? Things hadn't come together, Derek, basically, is what I'm telling you. There was still a lot of things I hadn't made up my mind about, and life was happening. And then I, yeah. I get out of college, and of course, I'm a French major. I go into an interview, and one guy says, what the hell did you do that for? You know, there was one other guy who was a French major. He said, you know what? I'm going into the Peace Corps. This is ridiculous. And I'm tired of being questioned for being French major. So they needed French majors all over Africa and Northern Africa. And I was sent to Morocco, and I was teaching English there for two years. And it was difficult. You're an outsider in Morocco. You're not Muslim. Yet you're in a society where you are hearing the call to prayer all day long. Everybody goes to the mosque these different times of day. There's a whole spiritual environment that's there that's woven into the society. It's not something that you do on Sunday. It's, this is the way you live your life. And this isn't quite all on the same path, per se, but you're still getting exposed to different aspects of spirituality, and you keep remaining aware and curious about spirituality. Exactly. And I had to go outside of the United States to see this, that there is a way that this is totally woven into your life and is your life. So I think that was the piece of Morocco, that it was in the background kind of influencing me that your life can be organized around spiritual principles, beliefs, practices, whatever. And then I come back and then... By that time, I really had to settle down. 
<laughs> the exploration was over. It, the, the money was not coming in. My dad had like, good luck. See you later. <laughs> Take care. So I did get a job and then I was working. I, I married a young woman I had met in the Peace Corps who was from Rhode Island. So suddenly I had this whole East Coast orientation from California. If you felt like an outsider on the West Coast, being in meditation and spirituality, I imagine on the East Coast, you probably felt even less connected. I felt like, yeah, like I had better not share any of this <laughs> stuff with anybody. But there's a flip side to this. This is like how unbelievable karma and coincidence and all of that is. So I think the urgency of the whole spiritual search and finding meaning accelerated a lot once my first wife became very sick. And then especially after she died, I was totally unprepared for this. And you were about how old when she passed? I was 45. So the midlife crisis, not just what am I doing with my life at work, and there's all kinds of upheaval at work, but then my spouse, my my partner, someone who really had a lot of influence on me, Marguerite passes away in the middle of all this. And she said some things to me that were critical that gave me a direction. So the first thing she did, she saw that, you know, I had made this auspicious connection through my acupuncturist with some Buddhists who were Westerners. They were not just any Buddhists. They were students of Trungpa Rinpoche, and several of them were from California, a little bit older than me. They were from like Berkeley and San Francisco. So I felt immediately at ease with these people. Like, okay, I can be who I really am around these people. And they gave me meditation and Buddhist meditation instruction. So that's where that started. And then as my wife got critically ill, she, first of all, she bought me my first meditation cushion that I'm still using. And she said, I want you to go to those people. You're getting too caught up in my drama. Go to your friends. Wow. It's very important that you do that. So I would have totally disintegrated without Marguerite and her wisdom, but that's exactly what I needed to do. So by that time, meditation practice, it's like oxygen. I need this to live, to keep functioning. And from, and from that point on, you continue to knit your spiritual practice with your daily life. Yes, I do. I do. Now, Marguerite was exploring yoga for her cancer. So then the yoga started to come back like, okay, this stuff is good for your health. She was looking at Qigong and she really loved the yoga and she liked doing it. And it seemed to calm her down. So how was she exposed to yoga as something to support her during this time? She, she was extremely open. She was another French major like me. We had that in common. She had done her own explorations of like Zen Buddhism. She wasn't so keen on meditation. 
she actually was a good Catholic, but the, we lived on Beacon Hill and there was a studio right nearby. And she just walked over and checked it out and thought, okay, this is good. I want to do this. And then she got me going there. So I'm coming back to yo, but now as a, something more recognizable to someone today, you know, a series of asanas. It wasn't hot yoga. They didn't have hot yoga back then. But this is like, early 90s, and people were opening studios, people like Karen Stefan, Patricia Walden, we went to their studio, Barbara Benna, she was on Beacon Hill, and they were really good teachers who are now senior yoga teachers. So do you think it was a combination of the community of being around yoga, the studios, the teachers, other practitioners, in addition to just moving your body and just feeling connected were kind of what caught her and why she was supportive of your path? Yeah, absolutely. She was going to school. She, she was going to Suffolk and so wasn't working like I was. I was supporting both of us. And so she was feeling a bit isolated and also, you know, with a cancer diagnosis, she was feeling very isolated. But yeah, this was a kind of community for her. People her age, interested in health, and this was doable. It wasn't really, really strenuous. The only thing about back then is now people know a lot about kinesiology, the body, who should do what, who shouldn't do what. It was, I think, back then a little bit risky to just jump into a yoga class. They didn't have beginner yoga, this yoga, that yoga. That. Yoga has really come of age. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more accessible, and there's just lots of different styles to check out, and there's really a yoga for everyone. So I want to jump back, because I think one of the things that I appreciate about people who have a spiritual path is that there's usually somebody who's there to either connect with them and support them. It's easier to pay attention and be involved and stay focused. The community of this stuff, whatever it is, is so important. And whether it's a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or a boyfriend or your neighbor, having somebody else that gets it and realizes where you're coming from yes. continues to kind of you know keep the wheels moving in that direction of finding one's own spiritual path. Yes, finding one's way. I would say you're hitting on the most critical point for me. And, and this was almost my first wife was guiding me to this, that I, I needed to be in a community. I, w I was really isolated. I was just going to work. I did not consider the possibility that m my wife could die, that she might die. I was totally unprepared for that. So really, having a community in the aftermath of that was profound for me. And then th there was my meditation community. That was really, really critical. But I wasn't taking such great care of myself. That typically happens to people who are grieving sometimes. You just kind of ignore yourself. And I needed to do some work. And yoga was there. I could go to these places in Boston. So you're in your mid to late 40s. You're starting to go to yoga studios and starting to do some more physical hatha yeah. yoga. How has your physical practice, complementary or supportive, 
the spiritual or meditative aspect that first caught your attention? I think initially, like a lot of people, just to feel better, to deal with a physical condition, to f- sitting all day in an office was taking a toll on me. I was in a very stressful job. There had been a lot of upheaval at this job, people being fired right and left. It was completely unpredictable. And I was still exploring at that physical stage. I hadn't really decided on a studio or a teacher for Hatha Yoga yet. Everything was set on the meditation front. Okay, these are my friends. They're supporting me. I love these people. I'm going to be with them forever till the day I die. But I wasn't taking care of myself. That message was clear. And it wasn't until I came down to Delaware and started working down here. So Rich, you were how old when you moved to Delaware? 55 years old. Got it. So you'd been doing a physical practice for, call it, six, eight years. Yeah, kind of off and on. I mean, I was kind of a wreck for three years, 45 to 48 wasn't doing much, was just going to the gym basically from time to time. But I really wasn't focused. How did the move to the great state of Delaware change the arc for you? Because my second wife, Allison, who first of all demanded that I take the job in Delaware, said I, I was not seeing things clearly and call them back up and tell them, yes, you'll go on the interview. So she straightened me out with that, and I'll be forever grateful to her for telling me to do that. So I got the job down in Delaware, and I'd say within just a few weeks of us moving down here, like two or three streets over from where we decided to live, there was a place called Empowered Yoga, big, huge sign. Allison goes in there, starts talking with someone in there, and this person says, wait a minute, you need to meet the owner of the yoga studio. He's not going to believe this. So Johnny comes in, they introduce Allison to him. Allison starts talking. Johnny interrupts her and says, I have been praying for you to come here. When can you start? (laughs) So Allison was an Ayurvedic practitioner, the Indian traditional medicine, which is very intertwined with yoga. And Allison was practicing yoga too. So she offered that at Empowered, and that was it. So she took off. I was getting into my job down here, very curious about what Allison was doing. She was spending a lot of time at Empowered Yoga. And so I went over there, met with Johnny. Johnny kind of looked at me funny and said, I don't know, you you may be beyond help at this point. (laughs) You're 55 and you're kind of set in your ways and you got this kyphosis, you got all this stuff going, you've been sitting in a chair the wrong way for 30 years. I said, well, why don't I just take a a beginning class and let's see if it, it works, if you think I've got possibility or not, rather than just looking at me and telling me. So I did the brand new beginner class and I started off, really took to it. I really felt terrific. It's that aha moment of doing yoga seriously. And it was hot yoga. So that was different. Yeah. And, And there's something about hot yoga with me where you would think I'd be totally enervated after that. I'm not. I'm invigorated. And I can't explain it. I think the blood flow, I think just getting your heart rate up, it gets you going. 
something happens, the muscles are a little looser, you're not fighting it as much. I mean, it is difficult. But at the gym, usually I'm wiped out after the gym. I'm tired. I need to take a nap or something. But that doesn't happen after the high yoga. So a couple of times of doing that, the teacher reported to Johnny, yeah, I think this guy can do it. So Johnny takes a look at me. I think what he appreciated was I was really paying attention to his cues. And he said, 80% of the guys I work with ignore my cues. So you're in. I will work with you. He saw the student. Yeah. He saw the eternal student that I am. And he said, okay, you're in. And it's been that way ever since. He's still correcting me. So Delaware was where I would say the yoga practice really got serious. And that was thanks to Johnny and his studio. So you and Allison have both supported Johnny's teacher training program down there. Yes. And I know that your contribution is helping explain the Yoga Sutras, which is an absolute must-read for every teacher training class. It's, it's a requirement. There's many yes. versions out there. Yes. But it's an absolute must-read. For those who are listening, what is the Yoga Sutras, and why do they matter? Okay. So the Yoga Sutras, Sutra, means like an aphorism or a saying, a pithy little saying that sums up a lot of information. So these yoga aphorisms or yoga sutras were supposedly written by someone named Patanjali around 2,000 years ago or so. So we don't really know who Patanjali was. There was a grammarian, very famous, named Patanjali. There was a Patanjali who was a philosopher. Maybe it's this one. But what he did was... Yoga was kind of all over the place in India, and it was very guru-oriented, and you got these guru-to-disciple instructions, and that's what you did. That was your yoga practice. And a lot of them were, they take off and live in the forest, live in caves, that kind of thing. He actually systematized everything known at that point about yoga, and he systemized it in what's called the eight branches of yoga. And this is more systematizing yoga rather than as a philosophy where a lot of it comes from. There is a yoga philosophy that existed at the time, which is interesting. But he codified it into a way of life. So that's what's important about it. And he starts off like the first line Yogesh chitta vritti narodaha. Yoga is the cessation of the waves of the mind. There's nothing about the body in that first line. It's the waves of the mind. This is about discovering stillness in your mind. That's what yoga is. And then, like in the third pada or chapter, when he gets into the eight branches, one of them is asana. Another one is pranayama, you know, breathing techniques. And, but the whole idea of asana, there's only one asana mentioned in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, and that's like sitting for meditation, the lotus posture. So this was huge. Like you now had a work to refer to, and you didn't need some pundit or a group of pundits to explain all of this stuff to you. It, it's in aphorisms. You can memorize this thing. And that was the whole point 
that Patanjali organized it this way, so that people could chant this, memorize it, and then incorporate it into their lives. What is it about spirituality that matters? And why do you think people should have a spiritual practice? So I think that's entirely up to the individual. If someone wants to just feel better with yoga, great. They want to look better with yoga, terrific. I can only talk about my journey, Derek, and what it has meant to me. So in that case, I feel it has really given my life meaning. I was kind of blown apart at the seams. I didn't know who I was after my first wife died. I kept referring to us as a couple, as us, as we, as this. I couldn't even say I. I want to do this now. It was a very difficult time for me, and I did some therapy around that as well. I mean, it wasn't just spirituality, but everything finally came together, I think, with meditation as my spiritual path. And then yoga and helping me to still my body. I was already working on stilling my mind, but my body was kind of jerking me around and discovering that. And that the two are interrelated, calm mind, calm body. That was an important discovery for me. And I I really credit Johnny for being open to meditation. Not many yoga, yoga studios had a serious meditation component, and Johnny really embraced it. So as we look to close here, for guys that are listening who haven't quite gotten into yoga, tried it a few times, haven't been back, for those who are out there midlife, 40s, 50s, they're dealing with the realities that everyone experiences in one way or another, job, loss of loved ones, stress, being overwhelmed. What can yoga do for those guys, and why should they reconsider coming back to a studio? So I would quote my wife, Allison, who always says, trust the truth of your own experience. So go into a yoga studio, try a couple of classes and see what happens. And maybe there's something else that you need. I mean, maybe you need some kind of serious body work or something like that or or maybe it's therapy who knows what it is or maybe it's just being around your kids more but it's your exploration you're in charge of it so you try it out for yourself you find out this is like a very important teaching of the buddha by the way he went to this one village and he was asked we got all these teachers coming through here some are pandits, brahmins, they got these long beards, they're very impressive, they're very eloquent. How do we know which teacher? And the Buddha's answer was pretty much this. Check it out. See if it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, maybe I can help you. Yeah. Come explore with me. That was one of his main teachings, just come. Come on with us. Come on over here. Yeah. (laughs) When I first got into yoga 20 years ago, there was nothing spiritual about my practice. It was literally all about sweating out the weekend before or just warming up the muscles. But I can't put this connection, this spark, this curiosity in someone else's head 
they just have to come find it or come across it themselves. Yes. And it may not necessarily be through yoga or meditation. But hey, Rich, it's, it's great to reconnect. I always love talking to you and Allison. And what I really appreciate is I see you guys as being folks who are further down the path on the spirituality and meditative aspect of yoga. And I, I always love coming to you guys with questions and hearing what you have to share or offer. So thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. Great to be with you, Derek. So I really enjoyed that conversation with my good friend, Rich. Another great guy from the Empowered Wellness community down in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, as his wife, Allison, says, trust the truth of your own experience. So go into a yoga studio, try a couple classes and see what happens. It's your exploration and you're in charge of it. Thanks for exploring this conversation with me and Rich. And remember to subscribe to the podcast and check us out on Instagram, where there's some really great nuggets from past interviews at GTY Podcast. <laughs>